This episode may contain content of a graphic nature. Listener discretion is advised. Thanks for joining us today on another episode of Body to Burial. I'm Mariah. And I'm Nikki. We're just two regular true crime junkies who decided it was time to see crime from a new perspective. This is Body to Burial. Okay, so for today, I thought we would try a different way to introduce the guest. Okay. I have come up with some clues, and I'm going to see if you can figure out what occupation our guest is today. So I'll give you some hints. Okay. I specialize in field work, including investigating the death scene. I track down medical records, interview witnesses, notify next of kin, and sometimes return belongings of the body to the next of kin. Any ideas who I am? I love stuff like this. Um, Crime scene investigator. Close, but no. I'll give you another thing. A medical examiner gives the cause of death from a medical standpoint. I give the manner of death from an investigative process. A coroner. Yes. (laughs) You got it. You're so good. I knew I could count on you because you're an excellent, excellent catchphrase partner. So I knew you could pull this out. I love stuff like that. That's fun. We're talking to Daryl. And he is a deputy coroner, and I'm really, really excited to talk to him. I know that I would always get like the medical examiner and a coroner confused, and I think a lot of people like loosely interchange those titles. So I feel like he's going to really help like define the difference, and I'm excited about that. Yeah, so it'll be good. We'll uh, give him a call and bring him on, and let's jump into it. Okay. Here we go. Good morning, Daryl. How are you? Hey, oh. how are you doing? Okay. So Nikki is on the phone with us, and you didn't get to meet Nikki last time. Nikki, this is Daryl. Nikki Hi. is my Hi, co-host. Nikki, how are you? Hi. Well, hello, co-host. <laughs> How's how it going? <laughs> All right. Welcome, Daryl. We thank you so much for joining us and taking the time to speak with us. We're super excited. Thank you. Me too. I am curious to have you define like what a coroner is. The way that I break it down in my head, and let me know if this is like an adequate way to explain it. I view it as like a medical examiner gives a cause of death from like a medical standpoint where a coroner will give like the manner of death from like an investigation process. No. <laughs> no, no. Okay, wrong. Perfect. I'm sorry. And don't listen I to understand. me, anybody. <laughs> Your logic works, but it just it's just not accurate. There we do the exact same job. Whether it's a coroner or a medical examiner system, is to determine the cause and manner of death. Period. Okay. The only difference mainly is the actual medical examiner is not conducting an autopsy. That just doesn't happen. Maybe in a high profile case, they may come in. That's just not their job. They have an administrative job. The difference is they understand pathology and and the system is more efficient because there are politics in play usually. 
In a coroner system, you have a person that's usually not qualified as a pathologist, you know, so they have to take the recommendation of the pathologist as word, even though they have some experience. You know, the coroner may have experience, but it's just a little bit different and it's a little more political. So you see on TV, like, let me let me just pick a show and forgive me. I don't want to get sued for saying this, but this is my opinion. (laughs) First Amendment opinion. A lot of people love law and order. Pathologists don't come to the scene. Now, maybe in a smaller town or something, but you you are not going to see the L.A. County medical examiner come out to a scene unless it's high profile. Usually that's what your investigators are for. Hence the term medical legal. So we have to have a criminal investigative background or skill set, as well as a medical understanding of terminology and conditions. So I have to be able to go into a scene and evaluate it as a crime scene investigator, but also look at injuries um, and the surroundings and determine, okay, this person did not slip and fall. They were pushed, for example. And that's for both systems. I feel like in kind of like the true crime world, like medical examiner and coroner, those titles kind of get like used like interchangeably. So they are synonymous in the sense of the job. This is the basic way I understood because I've worked for both systems. So a medical examiner, the position itself, if somebody is the medical examiner, for instance, of Los Angeles County, they are a pathologist and they are appointed to that position. So they are qualified to conduct autopsies and themselves um, and obviously supervise other pathologists from that medical perspective. A coroner is an elected position. Indiana has a coroner system, which means each county elects its own coroner. All you have to do is be 18, be a United States citizen, not have any felonies. That's it. Do you have to have law enforcement? No. Nothing? It's crazy. It's an antiquated system, but it's obviously older than a medical examiner system. Previously, you know, your judges uh, would hold or the sheriff would be the coroner. Also, it would be your senior law enforcement officials in the county. That's why. So it's not like like I would go and try to get elected because nobody would vote for me. I'm sure you're that popular. You could be elected coroner. (laughs) You're too sweet. (laughs) I'm not, but... Maybe I need to move to like a small town and become popular, but no, I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) You could be. So a lot of people that run for coroner do our law enforcement or have some medical background. But like some of our smaller counties, you know, they might be EMTs. That's the only medical experience they have. So from there, the differences vary based on the efficiency of the person running it. But they're not pathologists. They don't. They haven't conducted all. So what they do is they hire pathologists to actually conduct the autopsies. And those are the ones that will, you know, determine the cause and manner of death. Now, when you filter down in both systems from there, you have medical legal death investigators, which is what I am. We are all medical legal death investigators. That is what we are. We That's our job. That's what we are called. Our title may be different. So I'm a deputy coroner. That just means um, I'm sworn in because, remember, it's an elected official, just kind of like a sheriff. We're sworn in because we have certain law enforcement authority. On the ME side, they're more called forensic investigators, usually. 
but we do the exact same job. Are you coming in the same time as like the crime scene investigator is saying, I mean, obviously the police are probably going in first and then you guys are getting called. Yeah. Walk us through Daryl. Like what happens? Like walk us through like a, a case, if you will. Let's say it's a natural death. What we consider a natural person had a cardiac or when the cardiac arrest, you know, was 92, died at home. OK, we will get a call and we will go over the medical history and everything and say, OK, this person most likely died from a cardiac arrest. This is your time of death. That's it. If it's a scene, we're going to physically go to the scene and investigate it. We usually get called last because it takes CSI to process the scene longer. This case we had that's now public. I mean, I can talk a little bit about it from what's in the news. It's really sad. It was basically a mother had multiple children. She was abusing her children and she had a six year old. She cooked for New Year's or something. And he got into the specifically it was a pot roast to cook it to New Year's, got into the food and um, had her siblings, had his siblings put him in the shower in a cold shower for over an hour. So he obviously went into hypothermia. Put him outside in the snow, drove him to Gary, you know, our jurisdiction, and uh, set him on fire. Absolutely sad. Uh, but our job is to determine exactly that. Okay, well, where did he die and how did he die? Because people would just assume it was the fire and he could have been deceased way before that. That makes a difference. That makes a difference in jurisdiction. That makes a difference in intent. You're talking about trafficking a person across state lines, again, which is a federal offense for the purpose of murder. You know what I mean? It's a whole big thing now legally. So we have to be able to accurately go back and track the details of that case and investigate it. I have a question. So once you're looking at the body, you're just trying to determine if he, you know, was lit on fire after death or if that was a cause of death, are you also trying to look at like potentially what chemicals were used to start the fire? And then are you in charge of like the body from where it leaves the crime scene or does that transition to someone else? And then my other question, sorry, these are a lot of questions. <laughs> are you um, notifying family members? Like is, is that part of your job as well? So yes, to both. <laughs> so the first part is we're trying to determine, first of all, is this where this happened? How did this happen? And we work backwards from there. As far as notification, yes, it's our job to notify next of kin. And do you do that in person? Like they show in the movie, like somebody knocks on the door? Yes, as much as possible. Now, if it's, you know, I've had cases out of state, we'll either have the police go We'll have another, you know, again, like I said, if it's in L.A. or Kentucky or whatever, we'll call that local jurisdiction medical examiner or a coroner, have them go do it or um, the police or we'll call them. The one thing that we have to do is we have to <clears throat> make what's called positive identification. So, of course, you have a juvenile. They don't have a driver's license on. Them. So even if you have, um, let's say you find that we find somebody and this happens with homeless a lot um, or transients, they may have um like a medical ID card or something, but nothing with a picture. And even then, we really need to get somebody to physically ID them because we can't assume that their identification is theirs. With the little boy, how are you guys able to ID him? Because he wasn't in that neighborhood. Right, exactly. I can't get into too many details in that case, but let's just say we have, and you can look these up. A couple of days ago, we had a really bad police pursuit. 
and I'm, you know, forgive me, of course, this is graphic content, obviously, but it was really ridiculous and avoidable. But it was a young, young guy driving, running from the police of Chicago. He had his girlfriend in there. They're both in 20 and they had their two year old son in the back. They hit two semis, pretty much took the top of the car off. He survived. Of course, he was driving. He survived. That's just always how it is. And she was decapitated and the son was killed. Her head was damaged because it was on the highway. So she was not identifiable by face. Really horrible, but, you know, we had to take a picture of her tattoos to show to her family. There was no other way to identify her. We had to have something distinguishing to make make sure that it was her. With the child, you know, we don't try not to show pictures of children, you know, but to the family, it was their grandchild. And so, you know, those are tough. So we show black and white photos, for example. We try and bring the body back, clean it up. Like if it's bloody or something, we'll clean it up, take a black and white photo so we can show something that's at least presentable because it's traumatic enough. Do families, because like in the movies, they always like have the families come down to the morgue and like they slide the body out. I'm assuming that's not accurate and that it's mostly photographs. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So all right, in Baltimore, we had a viewing room bring the body out and they're behind glass. They can't touch it because remember, this is a death investigation. You can't have them crying and, and grabbing on the body and stuff, unfortunately, you know, because it's still evidence. Now, because of COVID, we don't do any of that anymore. Do you think that that's necessary? Like, I feel like a picture would be sufficient. I feel like it's traumatic. Well, believe it or not, a lot of times they ask to see the body. I would need it personally. <laughs> that would be me. I got to see him. I don't believe it. And then some other times, yeah. the reason why they come down is to pick up personal property because we have property there as we want to turn over. So it's tough. Um, there was one family, and I, I didn't have this case, but there was a family. They they didn't believe that this guy was, was dead. And they came back every day. They came back. This is in our office. They called the police and the medics to respond because they said that he is not dead. they said listen he's been in the freezer for a day he is not unfortunately i'm so sorry but i mean this is how far gone they were mentally you know they they just didn't believe it and it's sad it's tough because you know you try and you try to be compassionate and empathetic i mean i think it's got to be hard because especially if it's your if it's your kid though i mean it's 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 that unnatural thought that your kids are not supposed to die before yeah, you die. Yes. So I feel like it would be extremely hard to like reconcile yes, that. Yes. Oh, for sure. I would be probably camped out in a lawn chair in front yes, every day. Right. And like, I don't think I could it's do tough. it. I, I, you know, I have children. I, it's unbelievable. In certain cases, if they pass in the hospital, we, we try to let them see the family before we take them because it's a, a controlled environment. Even though forensically we try, like, um, especially if we have infant deaths, we will uh, wrap the baby up, swaddle them, and we give specific instructions. Only one, two people can come back. Don't touch the baby. You can kiss it on the top of its head. You know, certain things. We've had parents, their children have died, you know, even adult children. And we know that it was because of uh, some reason we have to take them back for autopsy. We'll clean them up, wrap them up in clean sheets, expose everything except for the head. Say, hey, you can't touch them, you know, but you can kiss them on the foot, you know, to give them some something. Oh, that'd be so hard. I would just want to, like, scoop up my baby. Some people could do it. Some people can't. Yeah, I feel like I don't know if I could listen to the instructions. Right. I'd be like, just like, whatever. I'm in here. I'm right. going for it. And they're like, no. But we're then, gonna, yeah. <laughs> That's why we wrap them up. But we have to protect any of the forensic evidence. 
Is that hard for you? Like seeing this on a day in, day out, and then you go home and then you're trying to be like normal. Like, oh, had a great day. <laughs> yeah, today. like you're a dad. Like, how do you function being a father when you're like witness? I mean, I don't know how I could go home after, you know, looking at a little kid frozen in the snow, you know? I yell at my girls. <laughs> I'd be like, stop going to the gas station after nine o'clock. You know, that kind of yeah. stuff. It's, it's tough. Right? Yeah, it's tough. But I think what's happened to me, a lot of investigators and police officers, if you notice, you guys are familiar with it. After about five years, police officers, after they retire, if they don't do anything after about five years, they die. Why is that? It's because they are so attached to the job and identify it with it so much. You know, if you don't use your mind, it withers away like any other muscle. Early on, I was very lucky to have uh, two things. I have a strong spiritual foundation. You know, I was a military chaplain, so I've seen death up close and I process it a little differently. I also learned how to detach from my job. When I first started as a police officer, I was just gung-ho, ripping and running. Then I had children <laughs> and then they went to school. I had to learn how to literally come home, take my shoes off and start transforming into a father. And I had to take that off because police identify themselves by their badge. They're, they're synonymous because you're always taught day one. You're a police officer 24-7, 365. Even if you're off duty, you have a responsibility to act, blah, blah, blah. And that's great. The problem is they don't know how to turn it off. Even in my, you know, even as a coroner, we have the same circle of friends. You deal with the same people all the time because they can relate. It's not healthy, though. And what happens is we end up having situations of violence or unfortunately we have a George Floyd situation where you may have a person that was inherently okay when they started. They may have been a good person, but. They're so compromised and so corrupted and so and have internalized this so much that they can no longer function objectively. So in our field where we're absorbing death like that, I I just have to detach from it. I process it uh, and um, I talk to people, you know, I, I work on film and TV and inside, you know, and that's kind of my my release. Like you would you do hobbies and you do releases right. to kind of like. Get get out of the world that you live in. So I entered the world of make-believe, <laughs> working on TV and movies. <laughs> Does your job ever require any sort of like counseling or grief counseling or therapy? Or is it kind of just like on your own, figure it out? Pretty much all agencies offer in the government. They offer what's called EAP, basically professional counseling that you have access to. But it's not, requ- it's like it's not, not required. It's not required, though. No. Do you think that it should be? Yeah, it's funny you say that. They have a, um, what's called a critical incident debriefing. And you take everybody that was involved in that, put them in a big room, and you do a debriefing. And it's called um, a critical incident stress management. Uh, there's a team of people that are designed to debrief and basically break everything down so that people can be with like-minded people, but they can kind of release without judgment So I believe, you know, chaplains are the way to go. And it has nothing to do with religions. Chaplains are religiously neutral individuals outside of your chain of command where everything is confidential, just like a psychologist or psychiatrist. You know, we have confidentiality, but you can discuss more openly what's going on rather than going to a a police psychologist where they're going to judge whether or not you can go back to work. It's crazy because... Yesterday, before I left work, 
I sent an um, email to the coroner and the deputy chief and I said, listen, um, I'm going to write a chaplain program for us because we don't have a way to decompress. Well, I applaud the initiative that you're you're trying to right? move forward because I agree. And, you know, the, the people that Nikki and I have talked to, you know, you guys are all in the same the same boat here and nobody can figure out a good outlet, you know, of support. It seems like it's not going to a psychologist to talk to. Would you, that would be like, they'd be afraid they'd lose their job. Exactly. And that's the standard. That's the model we use in the military. We still can refer. We can do something and say, listen, I know this guy is not going to hurt himself. I think they need to continue with some psychological or psychotherapy because there's some processes they need to go through. But I think they're fine to work. And again, I'm going to use I mean, I hate to do it. I'm going to use George Floyd case and I'm not defending that officer at all. But at some point there needed to be an intervention psychologically before this happened. There's something that happened that existed. Could he have been one of the ones that slipped through the crack that may have had racist tendon? Maybe. But nine times out of 10, what happens is officers start out actually okay, but they develop a, a bitterness of policing and a prejudice that takes over their actions. That needs to be reevaluated almost every year. Because what happens is, again, you even for us, even I mean, I've been called all kinds of names as a black police officer against you know black people and black police officer. And we don't talk about that part of it. We talk about the white black part. We don't talk about the within our race, how black officers are treated in within black communities, because it's assumed that we have good relationships and it's not like that. So anyway, that gets frustrating, too, because they they say you're too. What do they say? You're too black to be blue, but too brown to be black or white to be black. Something crazy. It's a really crazy saying that you don't fit in either world. And psychologically, that takes a toll on you, too. The other thing is this, and this is probably the most important thing. Chaplains are outside of your chain of command. If you go to your supervisor and tell them something, they have a certain obligation to do certain things, whether they're your friend or not. Plus, that information may or may not get out. Chaplains are outside of that, and they can go straight to the commander, the chief of police, the fire chief, whoever it is. And they can say, listen, chief, officer so-and-so has an issue, but I think we can work with it. But he may need a couple of days off without judgment. And the chief or whoever trusts that decision. And you don't have to worry about it getting out. You don't have to worry about your supervisor not liking you and not giving you the day, you know, whatever. How do people fall into being a corner? Like, do you have people that... They say they want to do it. And then once they're in the reality of it, they just switch gears. I would say probably the majority of people, once they do the work, they're they're not. It's not what they think it is. It's not TV. And there's a there's a side to this that isn't glamorous. It's not. You know, I have this homicide T-shirt basically says something about we face things that you can't. I'm proud of what I do. And I believe it's a call. It's kind of like war. If you've ever talk to somebody that's actually been to war, they don't talk about it. If you talk to people that have never been and they'd start, they're just talking about, yeah, well, I remember when I was, you know, I was, hey, I had this time I was deployed to Iraq and I did this and that. They probably are lying because as bittersweet as it is, because you do really gain some close friendships and, and ties, that's not something you just talk about. It's more we're going to these people and these people's grandparents have just died or something every day. And you just, I'm so sorry for your loss. It's like that. It's heavy like that. That's how you can tell whether people are meant to do it or not, because they're in it for kind of the the name and the glamour. 
But there's some of us that are in there because our job is to speak for the victims. That's our job. We they can't speak for themselves. Do you see certain times of the year that like Yes. You have like do you have like down times? Like like I know in hair, like the holidays are insane and then summertime it slows down. Like is it the same kind of thing for like your line no, of work? No, there's no it's just too random. But I will say that suicides go up around the holidays, suicides and drug overdoses. And of course, you know, our, our murders and stuff go up during the summertime. Sometimes, depending on what's going on, people are in the house. If it's a storm, you know, they're domestics that end up bad or uh, accidents, you know, fatal accidents, things like that. There are a bunch of random factors, but generally speaking, suicides and old overdoses go up around the holidays. I would assume that COVID probably made that with everybody having to stay in. COVID deaths are considered natural, but we, we test. So this is an interesting statistic. We test all of our decedents. For COVID, I would say more than 25% of them coming back are COVID positive. And, and they didn't know. Really? Wow. It's the real, it's the real deal. And then what are you have to list that as, as COVID or just like say they thought it was a heart attack? Well, that might not be the cause of death. That just, they just can't, they just happen to be COVID positive. That might not be the cause of death. That's crazy. But if we have, we do have COVID deaths or deaths that are related to upper respiratory infections and those are considered natural. So we release those. We don't do autopsies on those. Are the families allowed to decline an autopsy or is it required unless you guys rule that it was natural causes and unnecessary? Exactly. They they can't decline an autopsy. They also can't demand one. Oh, really? Well, they can't force us because we have enough information to determine factually that this person died of a medical condition. Now, they can have an independent forensic autopsy, which costs thousands of dollars. They can do that. And you yourself are doing the autopsies. We attend them. We do photographs. We investigate the scenes. We have, uh, they're called path techs or pathology assistants. They're actually trained in doing the dissections with the pathologist. There are different types of autopsies too. They're partials, they're externals, and they're fulls. Let's say we get somebody that's Again, clearly, like the girl that, um, unfortunately, that was killed in the car accident, that we know killed her. There's no reason to cut her body open and do a full autopsy. So that's going to be probably like an external. People who are decomped, you know, who've been dead for weeks. That's another thing we find um, around holidays because people go on vacation and they don't check on people or people are living alone. And we have to bring them back because we don't, they've been dead for so long, we can't tell what caused their death. We have to make sure nothing foul happened to them. That's a whole other thing. Yeah, that like, because you're like in it, you're touching, mm-hmm. you're, you're, yep. have you ever had a case where you just can't identify the person? Is that like considered a John Doe or Jane Doe? So on the simpler side, if we bring somebody back and we just don't know their identity in general, they're John or Jane Doe's until we positively identify them. We normally don't have them because usually, you know, even our worst fires, you know, usually dental records, medical implant. We put out our own press releases for John Doe, Jane Doe's for next of kin. Put it on the news. Anybody with information and we'll track it down. So let's say we identify them, but they don't have family. The state will then take them and either have them cremated or they will use them for like medical for science, you know. Really? So there's a law that says, you know, after so much time, if the body's unclaimed, then, you know, by law, it can be released to do whatever. So 
But usually we do our due diligence or like I, I had a decedent that was divorced. So his, his ex-wife is no longer the next of kin. They had children, but the children were minors. So they can't do anything. She couldn't stand them. So that's a, I know it's crazy. It's some crazy situations, but, <laughs> but anyway, like in that case, we would just say, well, listen, just send me an email saying that you, um, they're my, the children are minor children and um, you release it to our care. Really? Mm -hmm. Even if you have like someone that wants to take care of it and because legally they can't, you can't, your hands are tied. We could legally release it where we've exhausted every avenue or somebody in the family does. Isn't that crazy? So they'll be sitting in our freezer for that weeks. That is crazy. Yeah. And is that just because like legally, like say that daughter can come back and be like, now I want to take him for yeah. whatever. Oh, I found out if I do this, I get this money. That takes up probably a lot of your time as well as what your normal mm -hmm. job is too, is like finding. I would be good at finding repos because uh, that's something. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe that could be your job when oh, you retire. No, no, no. You Mariah know? probably can do it, you know, too. Daryl, you can just call me next time you get stuck. Just shoot me a text and right. I'll get on it. I will. I like to do ancestry.com where all like the information's already like in one site for me. And then I can just do Yes. Yes. That would matter. You know what? I didn't even think, but you know, the county's not going to pay for a subscription to that. So, or Facebook or social media would be easy too. Usually those aren't the problem, honestly, because a lot of them, we have multiple, so we have tattoos, we have all kinds of ways to identify the younger people usually. And then a lot of times they're um, missing persons too. It's usually with the people who are, like I said, transient communities or older. That's kind of sad to see like some like some people where it's just like, like to me, that would be almost sad where it's like, how can you be almost invisible? How can you be so alone? Like it's that's sad. sad. It's sad. You don't think about it till it's time. Well, Daryl, I think that we could keep talking to you literally all day long. We'll have to do like episode one, two and three. <laughs> Nikki, let's just wrap up with like a couple of our fun questions and then we'll let Daryl get on with his day. I have one that I always ask people because I just find it very interesting. But what is one of your hobbies? Oh, that is an interesting question. <laughs> Most of my time is really spent. Extra time is spent on movies. Like I work on movie sets. I don't know if Nikki knew that about me, but I. Um, oh, no, I didn't. Yeah. So I work as a, a consultant and a trainer for film and television, try and help them with um, accuracy, historical accuracy. So if they're portraying police characters or military, how they dress, how they act, how they walk, talk, and also train like train them in weapons use. So I train actors how to use weapons, how to move like police, stuff like that. That is really cool. Um, okay, so this is one we ask everybody. Um, what song would you pick to be the theme song for your job? <laughs> Are you kidding? Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> Axel F. <laughs> well, that was a quick answer. Axel F is the Harold Faltermeyer. That's right. The theme song for Beverly Hills Cop. I love it. When you load the dishwasher, do you rinse your dishes off first and put them in or do they just go straight in? Wow. How about I don't use the dishwasher? Hey. Okay. <laughs> I could have a stack of dishes with the dishwasher sitting there and I still wash them by hand. There's just something about washing by hand. Is it therapeutic, you think? Just feels good? Probably. I think the process of it. Yeah, totally. I get that. No, thank you. I just throw <laughs> it in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what about this one? If you could pick your last meal, what would it be? 
Ooh, that's a good question. Well, I know, I, I know it's gonna be steak. It's gonna be steak for <laughs> sure. It's gonna be a nice T-bone, potatoes, and some asparagus. What about a beverage or a dessert? Sweet tea. Sweet tea, I love it. With triple layer cake, yes. Triple layer chocolate. I'm a chocoholic. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I may even have to have a chocolate cake with chocolate ice cream on it. I'm Ooh, there you go. Yeah. Is there anything that you would be embarrassed to admit that you hoard? That I hoard? Mm-hmm. <laughs> anything embarrassing? <sighs> All right, I'm going to be real transparent here. <laughs> I love it. So for some reason, and I don't know, maybe some men are like this. I'd have a hard time throwing away underwear. Okay. Box, well, <laughs> there you go. Not my underwear as much as the t-shirts, you know, but, you know, when I get a comfortable pair or whatever, I just continue washing them and continue using them. I just, it's something about going to buy a new pack. Like, I mean, I got to go buy a new pack and just, I don't know. I don't want this color. You know, I don't know. It's just, yeah. I don't know what it is. It's already That's worked horrible. in. That is not horrible. Yeah. I think that is a very common thing. Oh, well, thank you again, Daryl. This was so fun. And I've literally learned so much every time I talk to you. So thank you so much. Oh, no. Thank you, ladies. It's been humbling. I appreciate it. Thank you. Take care and be safe. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. He is my most favorite person. Oh, God. I just want to put him in my like, pocket. Like, I just want to be friends with him and, like, yes. go have holidays with him. His voice is so soothing. I wish I could, like, record him reading a bedtime story. Literally. I could fall asleep to, like, listening to him tell me stories. Yeah, No problem. Like, he's going to be the best grandpa if he's not already oh. the best. Such a sweet guy. Like, I will say this. If somebody had to come knock on my door and tell me that something awful happened. It's got to be Daryl. I hope it's somebody like Daryl. Yeah. And I mean, glad to know that I was wrong about my definition of what (laughs) it was. (laughs) That was humbling. But, you know, I'm glad he corrected me. And I'm glad now that I can feel like I truly understand the difference. I didn't realize there were so many parts to his job. Like, I mean, really, he is like a the investigator part, like trying to find out. The puzzle, every aspect of this person. Looking at everything. Yeah. Everything. I just don't know how he does. Those kids stories are Ugh. hard. I don't I don't know how he like, I don't, maybe this is why I'm not in that kind of job, but like, yeah. I don't know how you walk through the door and like switch. I don't know. I feel like I wouldn't be able to function. Even I was like thinking about how he said, it's like, there's sometimes you go and you find bodies that have been dead for weeks. Ooh. Ooh. Like, I don't know if you know this, but like they get bugs real quick. You know, and so like, I feel like the visual of like seeing that, like I would never be able to close my eyes. I would have a rule that it's got to be 85 and above the person and it's got to be within hours. But even still though, Nikki, because like, what about the the poor people that have nobody claiming their bodies? (sighs) Like that would make me just be like, I'll sign for it. I'll take it. Like, how do you just. Like, you're telling me there's nobody on this planet that loves this person that's going to claim this person? It's a person. Like, that breaks my heart. I just, it's sad. It's sad all around. I was talking to my aunt the other day, and she had, like, a really, like, interesting thing. And she had said, you know, it's so important because if you think about it, 
like your grandparents are going to be gone when you die and your parents will most likely be gone when you die. So like the people that are going to show up for you and that are going to be there for you are the people below you. So it's Mm -hmm. like your nieces and nephews, your cousins, you know, so it's like staying in contact and making sure you upkeep those relationships. That's so true though. Like those are the people that are going to be there because they're the ones that are going to be alive. Yeah, but there, here's the flip side to that. You also have to have a good relationship with that person because what happens if that your cousins don't like Will or the kids right. and right. and you're supposed to have still a good relationship with this person who sucks and just because This is where like family dynamics are so so hard. Right? You know because there's so many to like navigate you know, distance or jobs or age sometimes make it like complicated to like keep up with people. But man, does it really stress when it comes down to those like final hours, like how important it is to make the time while you have the time and foster like relationships. But I also think that should be with people who deserve it, whether that's your family or not. Part of like growing up right as an adult is like learning what relationships warrant the time and the fostering and the nurturing, because I think any 30 year old plus listening to us can relate that like relationships take a lot of work, even friendships, like they take a lot of time and energy. And at least for me, when I was younger, I had this notion that like, as an adult, you had all these friends and all your friends were always getting together and you guys would be like doing like family trips and doing this and doing that. And like, Yeah, no, you're lucky if you get to do that once a year with people because people have jobs and and kids have school and commitments and sports and like Mm -hmm. all of these different like things that you get pulled into. So it's like, I also think it's like reconciling, like it's not like the friends show, like you're literally not (laughs) hanging out every minute of every day. You have to make the time and work it in and like prioritize it. But yeah, I mean, I think Daryl's work is, I don't, I don't want to say underrated. Cause like, I feel like it's a job that lots of people know exists, but I don't think that they understand like the net in which he's operating under and how much he's touching. Yeah. I didn't think that at all. I thought I didn't know his job was like that at all. He said something that I thought was really interesting. And then again, I think a lot of times we forget about, and Julie also mentioned this and listeners, if you don't know what we're talking to, we talked with um, hospice nurse Julie, and that's a great episode that we encourage you to listen to. But both of them commented on the fact that when you show up to a scene, you don't know what they've been doing before. So he could have just come off of, you know, like the car accident scene where you have a decapitated female, a dead baby and a driver. And now you're getting called to do this thing. And just like Julie, you know, I just walked in from another room where I could have had to say, you know, help someone die. And now I'm here dealing with this. So it's like, they're literally like steamrolling from one thing to the next. And in TV, it looks like they're just working that one thing. And like, that's all they're assigned to. Yeah. There's like four of those at the same time. The amount that they're carrying is like extreme. And I will say, like, I've always thought that women are better than men at like compartmentalizing and like focusing on the tasks at hand. I think we're just very good at like dividing and like putting things down. In my opinion is why I think females make good coroners. I always thought that it was, it was more physical, the autopsy stuff. 
for some reason in my head. He does say that it is. I mean, they are lifting up bodies and there's no way in hell. I can barely lift my son who's 11. I swear, right? Physical standpoint, there's no way I could do that job. Even if I had help. Like, I don't think you and I could carry a dead body, Nikki. I really don't. I could drag it, maybe. I might have to do like the the front part and you can do the legs. I have no muscle strength. Tiny, <laughs> tiny arms you're dealing with here. Literally, my well, friend calls me noodle like, arms. <laughs> I feel like with doing hair, like I'm using my arms a lot. You're so ripped, Nikki, so but- <laughs> ripped. So I feel like in my head, but this is also takes me back to like anybody in their head. Like anytime I watch the Olympics, I could do anything on there because that's, yeah, it's I not can that do hard. it. So yeah. in my head, this is probably another version of that. I think I can do it, but the reality is I'm probably not doing it. I will say though, you probably have a bit of adrenaline. And I mean, they do say like people pick up cars, right? Maybe that'd be sufficient and you could pick up a body. I don't know. I would like to say that I could, but then also it's probably no. I'm grateful for the job that he does because it's obviously needed and not something I feel like I could do. I'm even more excited and applaud his efforts in trying to bring like more mental support because Mm -hmm. every time we talk to these people, I'm just so shocked at like how little that is. And I mean, I understand that they're working against a stigma and I think that that's going to take like a long time to change, but They need it. There's like thousands of Daryls out there doing that every day. When you start thinking of like how many people in how many cities and how many states are doing what he does on a daily basis, it just makes the world seem so big. Okay. So I just did like a random internet search and I don't know if this is accurate, but based on a simple Google search, it says in the United States, there's 8,159 deaths per a day. Really? That's a that's a lot of people. Is that is that natural or what is that? Yeah, that's like all together. And again, I don't know how accurate this is because it is a Google search. But theoretically, if you were losing 8,000 people a day, you're not noticing the impact of losing 8,000 people a day. Yeah. He's working hard. As I think what the, this boils down to is he's working extremely hard every day. Seriously. All right. Well, until next week. Until next week. Woohoo. <laughs> All right. Talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Thank you so much for listening and supporting us. We do encourage you to follow us at Instagram at Body to Burial. Hit us up on Twitter at Body to Burial. And you guessed it, you can send us an email to hello at body to burial.com. If you have any guest suggestions, just let us know. Please hit the subscribe button or follow button on whatever app you are listening to. Thanks so much, guys. See you next time. <laughs>